Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like sports podcasts, check out Podcast One Sports Now every Tuesday on Podcast One Sportsnet. Backed by the global resources of the Associated Press Sports Department, join Jim Litke and Tim Dahlberg as they break down the latest news and events throughout the week. They will be podcasting from all major sporting events on site throughout the year. Check out Podcast One Sports now at Podcast One Sports Net and Apple Podcasts. Also remember to rate and review. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. While, of course, there's a lot going on in the playoffs, both conference finals just completed their Game 4. There's also a lot going on in terms of the draft. We had the lottery happen this past week and also the draft combine. And so that was a perfect time to talk with Sam Vecini, senior writer for The Athletic, focusing on college basketball and the draft on really everything that has changed over that time, but also more broadly since the last time we talked, which I think was late April. And knowing Sam and knowing our conversations, you can bet that it goes in other directions, including the future of the NBA, a couple of different teams, their unusual situations, and my extended thoughts, not final thoughts, because not all the way done with film yet. We talk about Luka Doncic a lot because we both watched so much film on him. And so we go in a lot of different directions. This episode is sponsored by Bear Mattress. You can go to bearmattress.com and use the promo code POD100, P-O-D-100, for $100 off your first mattress. BetDSI, if you go to BetDSI.com, you can use the Real Jam promo code, get up to $2,500 on your first deposit. Hymns, you can go to forhymns.com slash real. You can get a trial month for $5 while supplies last. And our friends at TrueCar, great place to buy a new and used car. This episode, as many are with Sam, is on the long side, is more than an hour and a half. And most of it is not particularly time sensitive. So if you want to take a little bit of time to appreciate it, please do. There's lots, lots to go, lots to take on, especially with the big Memorial Day weekend coming up. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, I'm excited to be here. Just coming off the combine in Chicago. That was really fun. We've got the NBA playoffs right now. Those are really fun. It's just a really enjoyable time to be a basketball fan. It would just be the slightest bit better if all of these games didn't end in like 15 point blowouts. Yeah, that'll change at some point. I don't know when that is. We're recording on on Tuesday morning Pacific time, so maybe maybe that'll change in Game Four Warriors Rockets. Maybe it won't. And the other element that didn't come up because there wasn't as much that happened other than opening a couple envelopes was the NBA draft lottery. And it was significant, I think, in a couple of different ways. I mean, Phoenix in the last year before reform, having the best lottery odds and winning the lottery, getting the number one pick creates a series of interesting options. But then also basically Sacramento jumping all the way from seven to one is big. And then Atlanta moving up. So then that meant Memphis, Dallas, Orlando, Chicago fell to four, five, six, and seven respectively. Yeah. Like it was funny. I was talking with our friend Audie Joseph yesterday and he brought up this point to me and he said, if there's ever been a lottery that says uh, the NBA draft lottery is not rigged, this would be it, right? Because you look at what happens, Sacramento moves up, Atlanta moves up, like both of these teams, not exactly what I would call like huge marketplaces that the NBA is trying to 
get players to, and then you look at who moved down, Dallas, Chicago, Cleveland didn't move up, New York didn't move up, Philadelphia didn't move up, uh, the Clippers had two chances to move up. So Phoenix obviously stays at number one. I think that's a marketplace that the NBA wants to really start hammering home over the course of the next few years. But yeah, no, it's just funny that that's the way it went, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is also notable that the teams that could have jumped and would have, you know, helped in terms of, let's say, BRI, those teams were all low chance because, especially because Brooklyn and the Lakers did not have any chance of retaining their own pick. Those teams ended up winning a couple of games late and pushing this out. If, if Brooklyn had been around the sixth spot, this would have been more interesting. You know, the Lakers bounced around a little bit in the late part, but they had that nice close of the year. But it did lead to what at least has the trappings of an interesting first overall pick because the Suns have connections with both of the players who it seems like are at the top of most people's boards. DeAndre Ayton played down the road in Tucson at the University of Arizona, though he is not from the area because he's from the Bahamas. And Luka Doncic played under new head coach Igor Kokoshkov as the Slovenian national team head coach in Eurobasket and before that. Yeah, and you know, I think that you can even go a little bit deeper than that. You know, Phoenix throughout the year, you heard, was quite high on both of these players. Robert Sarver uh, is from the Tucson area, and, and you know, throughout the Phoenix tenure, he's obviously been pretty involved. I would say on draft night for them, I mean, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s, he was involved in selling picks and got a lot of publicity for that. Anytime that a team has the number one overall pick and owner is going to have to sign off on it. A lot of the time they do let the front office do their work and and say like, Hey, you know, I trust you guys to do it, but you know, they're still going to be involved and get the final check mark, so to speak. He's also a donor, if I remember correctly, to the university of Arizona being from the Tucson area. So uh, that's, Stuff that will matter to him in terms of DeAndre Ayton, I would bet. And Luka Doncic, as you mentioned, he just went overseas to see Luka. He wants to see him in person and see what his potential investment is in uh, the Slovenian guard if they end up going that way. And, of course, Ryan McDonough has stated that you know Marvin Bagley is in play. They met with him in Chicago at the Combine. I bet that they meet with Michael Porter just to kind of get a better feel for him. Uh, I bet that they really do their due diligence on this pick. But I would bet that it comes from one of the DeAndre Ayton or Luka Doncic uh, duo. Almost every team other than like the Cavs in 2003 postures at least a little bit about potentially trading the number one overall pick. It's a good leverage play. You could say, hey, if you are interested in X player, do that. And theoretically, there could always be an option on the table. If somebody bulls you over, you could consider it. The number one pick was traded last year. I mean, I think people lose sight of that because it didn't happen on draft night, but the number one pick was traded last year after the lottery. Do you think that's something that the Suns will consider more than just to have it for as lip service? Or is this like, hey, we have a chance to get a difference maker here. This is the way we do it. I think that they will look into potential trades because I think that there is substantial pressure on that entire organization to make the playoffs next year. You know, Devin Booker 
it seems, is starting to get a bit disgruntled with the losing. He said, this is my last year that I won't be in the playoffs. So you would want to continue to appease him as your franchise cornerstone right now. You would, uh, hopefully, if you're Ryan McDonough, want to save your job as a general manager because it's starting to come down to that time for him. Robert Sarver is a guy that has been known to consider taking shortcuts for short-term success over long-term viability. I do think, though, over the last three years, they've done a really good job of trying to get in a lot of young talent and build toward the future. So I think that there are a lot of factors that say like, hey, they might consider moving this pick if they get bowled over with a veteran offer. And I have a random offer that's been in my head for a little while that uh, seems really stupid on its face, but I think so many of these offers end up being really stupid, so I don't really have a problem with it. Like, I think you could consider something with them in Memphis for number one and number four. But, you know, I think that there's just a lot of potential incentive for Phoenix to consider moving this pick, uh, especially if they think that the top four in this draft are a little bit closer than, you know, just the it being a consensus one-two top tier. And that structure is pretty much what led to Boston trading out of the number one pick last year is that they thought it was closer. I believe they, they had Tatum above Fultz because you don't make that move if you, if you have another guy at number one. I mean, maybe it could be so close that the, we're, we're splitting hairs, but it's certainly reasonable to see a board that way. I haven't gone all the way through all these players yet, but that is how you would do it is like, let's say another team sees a big difference between, let's say, Aiton and one of the other centers. And they say the only way that you can get DeAndre Ayton is to deal with us. And so they go there. But one of the big challenges in terms of a move up, move down situation, as opposed to trading it for a veteran, is that the teams that are close to Phoenix, like so if they want to drop, let's say, to three or four, those teams are not particularly asset rich. So they don't have what Philly had last year where it's, you know, oh, the, the, what Nate and I call the Lakings pick, where it was either the Lakers pick or the Kings pick. None of those teams have that kind of asset. In, in Converse, actually, Memphis has these obligations because of the pick they still owe to Boston that would make it hard for them to trade. They could trade established players. They have a couple of those. But the mechanics of a deal this year seem challenging. Of course, seeming challenging and being impossible are two very different things because all it takes is one team making the offer to shift what the Suns are thinking. All right, so I'm going to give you what my idea is here. So Memphis throughout the year has been pretty heavily connected with Luka Doncic. Just throughout the entire year, they have really, really thought that he was the best player in the draft, uh, is what I've been told, right? I don't really think that that's not common knowledge either. Like I think that that's pretty out there at this stage. If they really value him and they really want him at number one, could you consider a move like Mike Conley and number four for number one in all of the expiring deals that Phoenix has, like Tyson Chandler and Alan Williams and Jared Dudley, I think gets you to like 28, 29 million, something like that. And then maybe Phoenix throws in like the 31st overall pick or something. If you're really considering competing this year, if you're Phoenix and if you're Memphis and you really think Luka Doncic is the number one player, that's not like a wild ass move. I feel like what that gets into is 
what is always a really hard area, and I'm guessing you'd be sympathetic to this as well, in terms of the job that both of us do, which is that is not a trade I would make. However, that is a trade I could see a GM that wants to feel right. that he needs to keep his job making. And so with Conley, let's say you get close to evening the money for 2018-19, enough at least to, to qualify with trade rules, which technically speaking, the Suns would not have to do because they have cap space. They can function either way. But after 18-19, Conley has about $66 million for two years, which is a lot. But it's possible that the Suns just don't particularly care. I mean, Sarver, it sounds, seems to me like he'd be somebody, maybe they could even throw in, instead of a player who's expiring, throw in somebody who makes a little bit more money the next year. Though the challenge there is that I don't think the Grizzlies see Mike Conley as as dead of money as as I do. You know, like, that, that's right. not to say he's a bad player in any way. It's just that $64 million is a whole lot for a point guard who is aging and has injury issues. You know, like that that is a lot of money. So right, like like Mike Conley is what like he's probably a twenty million dollar a year point guard right now. Yeah, I would, like say, I would 20, say I would say I would say like twenty million healthy and then like you know somewhere between fifteen and twenty with the injury risk. You know the the, the oh, concern wow. there. And but, you're way lower on it than I am, man. Okay. Well, I, I just wonder, you know, when we're going to hit the point, especially with what he's like the accumulation of stuff with yeah. his with his feet. That it's just like, okay, well, like, is there a point where he just becomes a ten million dollar guy, and then that becomes a big issue? So I'm I'm generally pretty risk averse with players that are, but I love I love Con- I love Conley in when he's healthy and when he's engaged and when he's together. But it's just that I don't know how often we're going to see that player, and that was one of my concerns with Memphis last year. But the affirmative case for Connolly is he's better than the guys they can get as free agents. I mean, the only free agent point guard this year that can really swing a franchise is Chris Paul. Phoenix is not getting Chris Paul. That's pretty, right. pretty I obvious. mean, maybe Kyle Lowry, if Kyle Lowry hits the market too. Well, yeah, there are trade guys that could that could yeah. get out there. But in terms of in terms of free agents, it's not going to be there. So then what you say is they're like, okay, there are a couple of trade trade guys that, that could potentially be available and, and in those players. And actually, Lowry would be, to me, more interesting than Conley just because his contract is shorter. I mean, that that's pretty amazing yeah. considering, considering Lowry was a free agent last summer, but it was a nice job by Masai Ujiri to get him and Ibaka on three-year deals as opposed to going four or even five because those contracts are going to be movable a lot sooner. So it's an interesting idea. You know, as I said, it's not a deal if I were the Suns general manager that I would want to do. But that gets into another point I wanted to talk about with Phoenix, which is if you did not have these other constraints, you know, if we were in the like hypothetical, like playing a video game general manager mode or something like that, sure, the Suns would have a challenge that will be resolved, but that they have to deal with over the next year as they're figuring out what to do with their space and everything else, which is they still need to evaluate every single young player on their roster. I was, when I was doing their offseason preview for the athletic, I was like, well, crap, they don't know what they have in dragon bender they don't know what they have in marquise chris josh jackson is moving along i think they're getting a better sense with him and part of the reason you hire kakashkov is to help develop those guys but also hope that you can get a better sense of where they are right now and this is just how how the timeline can work out for a team that's as bad as the suns have been for as long as they've been we are one year away from chris and bender being extension eligible yeah i know They, they really have to figure out what they have in those two guys next year. Like next year is the year where they have to know. They have to. It's almost like if they do end up taking DeAndre Ayton at number one, and I think if you made me predict right now, that would be the way I would lean. I think that it's definitely still up in the air. Don't get that wrong. Like I'm not saying they're going to take DeAndre Ayton. I 
think that's the way it's leaning right now, though. They have to figure out which one of these guys is the power forward I want to build around, which one of these guys allows me to continue to build the team in the image that I want. And, you know, maybe you can still keep both of them. They can be backup guys. They can be bench difference makers. And you know what? The way they're going right now, maybe they're more fifth starter, seventh, eighth men. But they're at that point. They're at the inflection point where they have to figure out what they have in these guys. They have to know, is Dragon Bender a legit kind of fifth starter, which is where I'm kind of projecting him right now to kind of fall into as a guy who defends well on the perimeter, who can knock down some open shots, who passes well, and can do all of the little stuff you're looking for from a stretch for uh, low usage players. In Marquise Chris's case, you have to figure out, is he going to learn how to not make terrible mistakes and decisions on the basketball floor? I trust Bender a little bit more than I trust Chris, but that's just me. Well, I certainly trust Bender more in that part of the game, but overall, and, and you talked about the idea of, you know, starter versus backup. Another question is, can they, either one of them, probably in a backup role, hold up at, at center? Because then that opens up more minutes, you can do a little bit, and yeah. I don't know the answer to that. We'll see how they fit in with Kokoshkov's system, but that is, again, another important piece of information. And what's hard about evaluating those two guys is I think a lot of times, and this came up actually in the responses to a piece I wrote about KJ McDaniels and Jeremy Grant earlier in the season, but I think people generally, especially like, you know, the further away you are from it, focus too much on the on-court in-game stuff because it's like, oh, well, that's what we can see. So that's what the coaches evaluate because they get a lot more information from practices, film study, and everything else. But with those two guys, I think you need both. I think you need to see how hard they work in practice, what, what they can pick up, you know, in training camp and everything else. But also, you need to see what they can do against NBA talent as starters, as backups, and that's going to take time. You can't really, because of so much of the information they have gathered so far, especially in-game, is so fatally flawed because the team has been so bad, I think they're going to need more information. So it's, it's going to be a real challenge. That said, one thing the Suns do not have to worry about with those two guys, and they, they do with Devin Booker, is they do not have to worry about, oh, well, we don't we can't take a guy to go over them. You know, if they feel the best player on the board is DeAndre Ayton, it doesn't matter if either one of Bender or Chris can play some center. You take Ayton if that's the way it is. Now, yeah. Doncic Booker gets a little bit more complicated because positions can be fluid on the perimeter. But generally speaking, if they think Doncic is the best player available, they don't get an offer to trade down, take him too. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of just playing super big for them on the perimeter, playing like Josh Jackson, Luka Doncic, and Devin Booker. All guys, they're six foot six to six foot eight. All can handle the ball a little bit. Booker's obviously the best shooter of that group. Doncic is an improving shooter who can knock down shots off the dribble a little bit more than off the catch right now. These are all really, really difficult decisions to make if you're Phoenix. Now, do you go toward more of a perimeter player because the NBA is going more toward a perimeter-oriented attack? Do you go toward the guy you just think has the highest upside in DeAndre Ayton? This is all very complicated. If I was Phoenix, I do really like the idea of being able to play six foot six to six foot ten potentially all across the board in your lineup and switching everything and playing super athletic defense. That's very valuable to me as a evaluator, especially whenever you have someone in Josh Jackson, who I think can be a really good point of attack defender on point guards. Like you don't have to worry about one of Devin Booker or 
uh, Luka Doncic dealing with that assignment. On top of that, even if, let's say, the trio of Doncic, Booker, and Jackson doesn't work out, they can add somebody else to kind of and, and swap it around and make it work. You know, you can have a kind of a four or five man rotation and then just cycle it through. You know, you obviously you want to start and finish with something, but they'll have other good draft picks in the future, whether it's their own or Miami's. They'll have cap space, theoretically, depending on what they do this year. So I, that's why you take the best player available, because the Suns aren't good enough right now to say this is the last shot we're going to have. And so if it's not the last shot you're going to have, take take the best player you can, and then you'll, you'll work around it. And that's why having that flexibility. Lots more to talk about with Sam Vecini, as you would expect. But first, a message from Bear Mattress. Bear Mattress is designed especially for your active lifestyle, was built for optimal cooling, comfort, and muscle recovery. They use eco-friendly materials and was developed with insights from sleep experts, professional athletes, and engineers to create a super comfortable and supportive sleep that is up to seven times cooler than traditional foam mattresses. They use FDA-determined salient technology, scientifically proven to provide a more restful sleep, restore tired muscles, and improve your overall well-being. While buying a mattress in a store can cost thousands of dollars, Bear Mattress starts at just $540. They're made in the USA, sold online, and shipped free to your doorstep, making it easy and convenient for you. And that price point is amazing. You can make it even more amazing by going to bearmattress.com, B-E-A-R mattress.com, and using the code POD100, P-O-D-100. And the reason it's that that instead of something else is because the 100 is how many dollars you get off your mattress. So not only is it already amazingly priced, but you get $100 off any size. Also, buying a bear mattress online is completely risk-free with a 100-night in-home trial. You get 100 nights to try out the mattress, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you 100% of your money. They have over 5,000 five-star reviews from verified buyers. was named the Cool Sleep Mattress by Men's Journal. So you can check it out for yourself. Go to www.bearmattress.com and use the code POD100, P-O-D-100, to tell them that you came from us and to get $100 off your mattress purchase. also want to tell you about our friends at BetDSI. May is a fabulous month for sports. Between the NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs are both still going strong, both getting close to the finals, but, you know, still in the conference finals, of course, for the NBA, plenty of games left. And other special events, baseball's regular season going on too. BetDSI has hundreds of wagering options on all of these, and also UFC, NHL when it comes back, golf, if you're into golf, and you can play virtually any sport at BetDSI. And what I think is a really cool feature is that they have live in-game wagering on all NBA playoff games and other major sporting events. So if you have a read on where a game is going, you can benefit by being active on it by, by getting into it early. And there's a great promotion going on right now. If you go to betdsi.com and use the real GM, R-E-A-L-G-M promo code, you can get up to $2,500 free on your first deposit. That's a really amazing deal. BetDSI has been in business for over 20 years. They're top rated and they're safe, built on fast, easy payment of winnings. So you can check it out, betdsi.com. Use the real GM promo code for up to $2,500 free on your first deposit. BetDSI.com. Go there now. Start winning today. Let's go straight into talking about Luka Doncic. I've started watching more film on him. I'm not all the way done. This is not meant to be my prospect analysis. But the general take so far, and I've watched a lot on him already, more than I often do with a player at his level, is that he is an incredibly hard guy for me to evaluate slash place because of a duality. He 
succeeds and has succeeded at a remarkable level, a historic level for somebody his age, yet I am still unsure how that transfers to the NBA because of the specific differences between the EuroLeague ACB and the NBA. Yeah, for people who don't really know, the the EuroLeague is just in many ways a different game to the NBA, much in the same way that college basketball is a different game to the NBA. You know, college has the different geometry of the floor because they have the shorter three-point line and that throws off spacing in a pretty significant manner. You look at the EuroLeague, the EuroLeague has that similar shorter three-point line, but they also have the different lane. They have the wider lane. They have uh, a lot of different little rule eccentricities that make things difficult to evaluate in many ways. So when I evaluate Doncic, I'm just trying to learn much in the same way as I would with a college player, how I think he would react to increased athleticism around him. And that's the other thing with the Euro league, you know, in college basketball, they're often in the highest end matchups of the season. So like whenever, Arizona is playing USC or something. There are a lot of high-level athletes on the floor. They might not be good at basketball, or at least like in relative terms compared to NBA players, but they're going to be athletic on the basketball floor. The EuroLeague, it's not always that athletic, but it is always more polished and a higher level of basketball than what you'll see in college. It's a much stronger league in terms of play. Now, it's very impressive in that regard that Luka Doncic would win MVP this year and the Final Four MVP as well. Uh, he's They started awarding the regular season EuroLeague MVP back in like 2003, 2004, something like that. Anthony Parker of the Cavs won the first one. Doncic is four years younger than any player who has ever won the MVP, and he is four years younger than – or that guy – was Milos Teodosic, the guy who was the previous youngest winner, and he is four years younger than the previous second youngest winner of the award, which was Nemanja Bjelica, who was 27 years old. So the fact that Doncic is winning this award as a teenager is unheard of. It's unprecedented, and it makes him probably the most accomplished teenage uh, player in three decades, something like that. Like, that's not an exaggeration. Like, he's probably in that kind of realm in terms of talent. So the next thing that you have to kind of look at is just the aspects of his game. He's a great pick and roll ball handler. He is able to get separation with a ball screen where he struggles sometimes, I think is in isolation getting separation. He has good change of pace dribble. He can drop some guys sometimes right to left. He has really fluid hips that allow him to change direction really well. But He's just not super quick. He doesn't have that elite level first step that you see from creators in the NBA. And like even a guy like Steph Curry has a really quick first step that allows him to get by. It's hard to evaluate him, I think, as a lead ball handler. And it's even a little bit hard to evaluate his shooting ability because you look at uh, the percentages. They aren't elite now. He is a good shot maker, I think, off the dribble. He loves that little you know, step back, three-point, kind of almost fadeaway looking shot that it's – on balance, so it's like not a total fadeaway, but it's uh, a very difficult shot to block. It's a high percentage shot for him, but a low percentage shot for others. He's a very 
fascinating player to evaluate on that end of the floor just because of all of those different factors in terms of if he can get separation with and without a ball screen. Yeah, it's it's such a big challenge. And with Doncic, especially because he's not point guard sized, you don't think it's not wise to think about him as being guarded by point guards because if he is good enough offensively, he will be guarded by bigger players and other teams will make it work. That's the way the the the, the sliding scale here is are you good enough to be guarded by the other team's best perimeter defender, second best perimeter defender, third best, and all that. And so with Doncic, one of the things that concerns me about him is that the best way he creates separation against a like-sized player. He's good at working bigs. He had a couple times where he put guys on skates. I really enjoy that. But the best way that he creates separation is via step-back jumper. And sure, if you are a great step-back player, we just saw James Harden likely win an MVP. So you can do it that way, but it is really hard. And you need to be elite as a shooter, especially with that shot to do it. And I don't see Doncic, at least at this point, being that player. I don't and he see. might get there, by the way. He might. He, sure, he certainly could. Absolutely. And I mean, with you know, with the the time that he has to work on his game, I'm not writing off any possibility with him as a shooter. I believe he's been pretty solid from the free throw line as well, like in the high 70s, low 80s, mm-hmm. depending on where he's been. So that that's another kind of positive sign there. This is something that I've brought up to a couple people, and it's such just so strange for a player who is as successful as Doncic is with the ball in his hands, is that he doesn't have much shake, much wiggle to his game. And he is successful with the ball in his hands without it in the second best league in the world. So you sit there and go, well, what the hell is this? You know, like, is that a sign of just him being so incredibly skilled and having everything else? Or is it, you know, like, okay, this this part is more, it's more like those college players, like I wrote in a piece for Real GM and I was not thinking about Don Sitch when he did it. It's about the way that Adam Morrison was misevaluated because he was able to create separation in college, but it is a lot different to create that in the WCC when he was at Gonzaga than it is at the NBA level. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. The thing that kind of makes it all tie together, though, is the fact that he's such an unbelievable passer that it's going to be really difficult to help off of guys against him. And how much does that total – because I think he actually does have a little bit of shake. It's not like – high level shake like you're not talking about Trey Young who has the ability to go right to left cross or Colin Sexton who uh, is just ridiculous left to right cross going downhill toward the basket but I think he has a little bit of shake especially whenever he uses it with like a hezzy dribble and the thing that's going to make it life a little bit easier on him is the fact that if you do end up helping off of him and if he is able to get by that initial line of defense he's going to absolutely demolish you in terms of his court vision, he finds every single guy wide open, be it far corner, be it near corner, be it drop off pass, be it kick out to the wing. He's got all of the passes in his toolbox to be able to hurt you defensively. So I really, really like the fact that he can do that in addition to knock down shots going backward. I would like him to add a slightly more consistent floater game. He has a floater game right now. I think he's going to need that to be absolutely deadly in the NBA for him to reach like, you know, all NBA level, which is where I think a lot of people are hoping that he can get to at some point. So there's a lot to really like about him as a player in terms of skills, like just basketball skills that you learn. It's hard to kind of imagine a more polished prospect entering the league, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it it would be tough. I mean, he 
has a nice pace to him as well, and I like the way that he can sometimes see where a play is going. There are a couple times in the Final Four game, not in the championship game, where he was able to make a, a baseline pass, which just guys don't do. Like, he was able to get it in to, I think it was Gustavo Ayon yeah. both times, and it's kind of a court vision thing, but I think it's more a, a basketball IQ thing of knowing the timing of when the when the mm-hmm. defenders were going to kind of phase out. It's It was sort of paralleling what LeBron does with 2.9ing defensive players. That means like knowing when a guy is going to be leaving the lane because he can't get a three-second violation. And you don't see that from, from many players. And also Doncic has a, a different kind of value, even if... So one of the, the ways that I think about players and I've honed this over the last couple of years, is like, okay, if the best thing that they do doesn't work, what happens to them as a player? And so if Doncic yeah. can't create reliably, like if he's not a reliable shot creator for teammates and all that, like at the at the A1 level, you know, if he's not the lead the lead offensive player on a, on a highly successful offensive team. Well, if he needs to be more of a catch-and-shoot guy, attack closeouts, make good passes, push the ball in transition, which is another gigantic strength of his, that's a good player. You know, if he can do that and hold his own defensively, be kind of like a super Fournier kind of kind of type of guy, that's fine. I, I think that's a, a valuable player in this league. It's not probably an all-star. It's probably not, it's not an all-NBA guy, yeah. but it is still valuable, and that is unusual with him. It's, it's very different than a lot of these more limited players where it's like, okay, if their big thing doesn't work, they might even be out of the league. Yeah, like, to me, the worst-case scenario for Luka Doncic is, like, slightly better Dario Saric. And that's an insane level. Like, Dario, for a floor, right? Like, that's a crazy level. Because Dario, uh, this year, I think, was one of the more underrated guys in the NBA. You look at the numbers he was able to put up uh, playing in, like, I guess like a secondary role in Philadelphia, but he was often kind of a primary guy for them whenever Ben Simmons was on the bench, uh, like 15 points a night, seven rebounds, three assists. Like that's the kind of level you're talking about, especially if the shooting comes along to the level that I think it can in the more well-spaced NBA where it's harder for guys to recover onto shooters and shooters just generally get more open shots. If that's your floor, that's, really high that's really good and you know maybe i do kind of default more to the idea that maybe his expected value outcome might be a little bit closer to that than what you know most prospects are like most prospects you kind of think of it is right in the middle like deandre ayton could be i don't know like david robinson like level hall of famer i'm just throwing out a name like i don't really think they play similar styles of basketball but he could be like that kind of center you know top 30 player ever or he could be a guy that ends up just a solid nba starter who just kind of relies on his athleticism right so i think that there are a lot of kind of different areas in that mix where he could end up but i think that the safe spot is probably right in the middle where he's like an all-star level big man in Doncic's case he might end up as more of like a really super awesome starting basketball player in the nba who like sneaks onto an all-star game at some point that's not a loss if phoenix gets that guy like that's fine i think you should be happy but i feel like the hype has built around him so substantially 
that anything else other than like 10 time all-star is going to be considered a disappointment. And I think that's a little bit unfair to him. Yeah, that is, that is certainly unfair to him. And there is the challenge of, of dealing with expectations. I mean, I think that's true for, for all these guys. And with Doncic, I'm fascinated to see kind of what kind of flexibility the team has. And that's why I think going to Phoenix would be a really good thing for him. Also, you know, to a point Sacramento could be just because they don't have enough good players that they can, you know, that they have to pigeonhole Doncic at least early on. So maybe he'll get that opportunity to really grow into whatever the role is that makes the most sense. But it is a challenge to take somebody where the idea, as as effective as Charge was, and I think Charge is an underappreciated part of what made Philadelphia's defensive system work. Having somebody who isn't necessarily the lead guy, you know, he's not necessarily guarding the other team's best perimeter player, but can competently guard whoever is put in front of him is hugely important for what Philadelphia wants to do, and so many teams want to go in that direction. If Doncic can become that kind of guy defensively, which I think he can, you have that. But what I think is the most interesting split between Don Sitch and Aiton, and again, I still need to watch a lot more film of both guys, is this fundamental difference between the two of them that what Aiton has is something that Doncic will never have, which is that truly like mind-bending physical capability. You know, like Aiton is, we've talked about it before on Real Jam Radio, like he's like he was created in a lab. But what yeah. he doesn't have is the intensity of effort and purpose that Luka Doncic plays with all the time. That's part of why Doncic is such a good perimeter player. And Doncic has that, but doesn't have the athleticism. So it's kind of like, well... Which of those things can you cultivate? Which of those things can you develop? Or which of those things can you survive without? Because it might just be, while I think it is more likely that Aiton cares more, can can grow in his effort level, than that Doncic can become a better athlete, though he can, you know, with strength and conditioning in the NBA, I think he can really improve there. It might be easier to survive, you know, like Aiton might end up being the the more kind of frustrating guy to have because if if the answer is always that you can do something and you just don't, that can be really hard to deal with. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that it also makes it interesting to kind of open up that avenue to other prospects, right? Because like, you know, look at a guy like Trey Young. I think he's like the ultimate guy in this class because – so much of what he does is like a home run swing, right? What if Trey Young can't get separation at the next level? He's not like he's just not anything more than a backup point guard, right? But if he can get separation at the next level, he's potentially an all-star point guard. Like it's such a home run swing, right? You know what I mean? Like that ability to survive without a certain skill that is a question mark is so important. And I think that it's where, uh, for me at least, Luka Doncic, like if he can't get separation, he's still going to be a really, really good NBA player because he's one of the smartest basketball players I think I've ever seen at his age level. If DeAndre Ayton doesn't play hard, he's still going to be incredibly valuable because he's a physical freak. And, and like if he can't defend the rim, he's still going to average, you know, 17 and nine points a night and be valuable uh, as an athletic perimeter defender, probably. So there, there's just a lot to like with these two guys where if you break down every single one of their strengths and weaknesses, they can still survive without them. I think Jaron Jackson's another guy like that too, where Jaron Jackson is going to be able to survive without, you know, certain skills translating. Like we feel pretty good about Jaron Jackson moving his feet on the perimeter and defending and being out in space and being comfortable. If he 
doesn't translate there for whatever reason, he's still going to be a very valuable shot blocker. He's still going to be a guy that hopefully can play a role offensively because of the shooting. You know, like, like taking away certain skill sets and sometimes multiple things don't translate and that gets a little bit trickier. I think that's a really good way to evaluate prospects, especially in today's day and age where if you watch either the Warriors or Rockets series and you watch the Cavs and Celtics series, so much of the NBA in today's day and age is attacking the weakest part of what an opponent puts on the floor. The Cavs continually going at the Terry Rozier switch on to LeBron James. The Warriors just continually attacking the Rockets switching in pick and roll. Like it's, it's just very, very matchup dependent now in that way. So I, I think that's a really interesting way to think about things from a prospect perspective. And it's also worth mentioning that it is, that is the largest split between the playoffs and the regular season. Where And there are a lot of different examples that you could go through with this. But the severity of weaknesses and relative weaknesses is a much larger part of the playoff game than the regular season game. And th- how much that matters is is a very interesting question because, you know, like there, there are certain guys that are much better in the regular season than they are in the playoffs because of these specific weaknesses. Like I would say Andre Robertson to a point is there because you don't really, teams don't game plan for individual opponents in the regular season because they just don't have the time. So how do you deal with that if you are a team like Sacramento, who, you know, you want to be a playoff team eventually, but you're not there now, probably won't be for another couple of years because they just have to build up their talent level so much. And it's fascinating. I mean, so do you, are you willing to take the kind of swing necessary to say, hey, well, it's less likely, and maybe they're not a good example because they're picking it too. Maybe we're, maybe we're talking more in the like Orlando Magic range at six, but it's a challenge. And I mean, also these players are still getting a lot better, getting a lot worse. I mean, I think that that's another element that, that often... You and I don't lose sight of it, but other people can just because it's it's a challenge is that every single player who is good in the NBA has worked hard to get substantially better after becoming a professional. That is just a part and parcel to the league right now because the skill level is so high. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that it's so just looking at the way that prospects have been evaluated this year, like I see a lot of people question why are, you know, in an era of pace and space, why are these in perimeter play? Why are these big men like populating the top of draft boards? Well, if you look like they're all all the ones that like I really like and that a lot of people really like are super athletic big men like Marvin Bagley. Nobody's doubting the athleticism there. DeAndre Ayton, nobody's doubting the athleticism. Jaron Jackson, uh, already a really, really good perimeter defender. Mohamed Bamba, again, like pretty comfortable on the perimeter for a guy that is his size and has his length at least. So these bigs all fit within the modern framework of the NBA as it's going today. Like Wendell Carter is a guy that I'm a little bit lower on than I think some people are. And that's because I look at him and say the feet scare me. Like the the fact that he doesn't move his feet super, super well on the perimeter, that scares me a little bit. But Guys like Marvin Bagley, uh, guys like DeAndre Ayton, Jaron Jackson, Jackson's pretty polished, but guys like Bagley, Ayton, and Bamba, for instance, they just like haven't been taught how to do it super well yet. And, and these guys are all like 19 years old. And I think that it's going to happen for them. Marvin Bagley, for instance, I always use him as the example because I find his path very interesting. He was coached by his dad for like three years and then went to Duke where Duke does not have a track record of coaching big men how to defend well. And 
also they had to go to zone midway through the year because they couldn't get their super athletic big men to defend. So like, yeah, you can say maybe he won't defend and I'm not saying that Marvin Bagley is going to be a good defender, but I think that there is an upside there for him to be a good defender once he gets into an era and gets into a situation where he's asked to defend and asked to really move his feet on the perimeter and is taught the technique of how to defend on the perimeter. Yeah, I agree that the coaching up, especially because the college game doesn't have a lot of those elements and you can't ask their players to switch the way that NBA players are. They don't have the capability. There's a reason why even on major major conference schools, those players mostly aren't making the NBA. It's because they can't do a lot of these elements. So asking them to doesn't really make much sense. And that gets into your idea of, you know, like, why are there so many bigs up there? There are two other elements that I want to bring up. One, these bigs in particular are very, very good prospects. And there aren't as many similarly good players on the perimeter. That's part of the reason perimeter players are so valuable. And then the second part is, I think you see that big men question manifesting itself not in the top 10, but from like 10 to 30, where yep. the guys, basically the question, Nate and I talked about this a little bit when we did the top, we did our center rankings, was there's a group of players that are incredibly valuable because maybe they can stay on the floor of the playoffs, or even if they can't, they can provide enough value in the regular season to make it worth it. And so you could think of like use of Nurka just being a good dividing line for, for some of those things. That group, intensely valuable. If you can be in that, if you can be there, worth paying a guy, worth drafting them high. Anybody who is not in that group is pretty interchangeable because teams are playing true centers less. They're going through it. And I think that's what you see on the board is that these guys that have the upside to potentially stay on the floor, you know, be maybe not the same role, but the same kind of idea as Clint Capella. They can stay on the floor Mm -hmm. they can play in the playoffs. Those players are incredibly valuable. There aren't that many of them in the league. There are going to be more guys that come in. So do that. And anybody else, you're like, oh, we'll f- we'll find somebody. And that's what the board looks like to me right now. Yeah, no, and I think that that's kind of the way that these bigs have been evaluated, too, in that 10 to 30 range. Like, who's there right now? Like, Mitchell Robinson is a big that's there, but I'm not sure he's actually there, to be honest, for NBA teams, just because I don't know how much they trust him. Uh, Robert Williams is a guy that's in that 10 to 30 range. He kind of fits exactly the Clint Capella mold that you just talked about from an athletic perspective. If he hits his ceiling and starts to play hard on a consistent basis, beyond those guys, I mean, like, you look at my board, I mean, like, the next guy on my list is, like, 40 with Mo Wagner. So from, like, 10 to 40 on my board or 11 to 40, I've got two bigs right now because it's just not worthwhile. Like, you can find these guys. You can find guys uh, that are six foot nine to 7 feet tall who are going to probably provide you the same level of play. Like, you look at a guy like Aaron Baines. Everyone kind of scoffed, it felt like, when Aaron Baines got $5 million last summer. But – is there a big difference between Aaron Baines and someone else that's like Aaron Baines? Right. I think Baines has done a better job defensively. He's been an underappreciated part of Boston's success yeah. this year. But, Especially but, rebounding the ball. They were right, terrible yeah, and, defensive rebounding the last two years, and he's been a big part of why they've gotten a lot better. Yeah, and you, and you can find – and there are players with different strengths and weaknesses in that group. So hopefully you can get somebody who, A, is at the right price point, but B, also does what your team needs. So, for example, like 
hopefully Nerlens Noel goes to a team that can appreciate his you know his defensive capability and then offensively they're probably gonna need to figure it out a little bit well if there are certain teams that need that type of player there's certain teams that need more of a floor spacing five and there are going to be options there too and that's why you know if you're getting into that price range teams can probably the way that I would be handling this moving forward is having two or three options and then being willing to cycle through them based on how well they play and what a team needs with a given lineup you know certain teams you know you want that rim protecting five in the starting lineup because these teams have such capable ball handlers and if they're getting into the teeth of the defense you need that defense to have teeth but on the second unit fewer creators more you know different goals offensively and defensively than different players work there too so I think that you can get into a more effective ecosystem and so it's going to be interesting to see where that goes and and I think there there are a lot of jobs out there for centers. It's just that they aren't high paying jobs. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I think that every team is still going to carry like three centers. So that means that there are going to be what like, oh, oh man, math is bad. Ninety centers in the NBA or ninety like big men in the NBA who are somewhere between six foot eight and seven feet tall and have like traditional back to the basket slash traditional center basketball games. But like you said, these games are not going to, or these players are not going to get paid crazy amount of money in these players for the most part, unless you fit into the modern construct of the NBA, like a lot of these higher end bigs in this class do, these guys are not going to be worth super high end draft picks. And that's, you know, again, that's where I come back to a guy like Wendell Carter, Wendell Carter, has a more polished offensive game than maybe anyone in this class other than DeAndre Ayton. Like, I really like DeAndre's offensive game, but like, you can probably make the case that Wendell has a more polished offensive skill set. He can shoot it from distance consistently, knocks down free throws, great footwork in the post. He's a good passer. You know, he, he can do just about everything you're going to ask him to do offensively. And defensively, I think he's a pretty underrated rim protector. And I, just really, really worry about the foot speed. He's gotten himself into fantastic shape. He has like 7% body fat right now, uh, 250 pounds at the combine. Like he, uh, he's done everything that he can to put himself into position to accentuate the strengths that he already has by mitigating his weaknesses. But I just don't know if you're going to be able to do it. And if he doesn't do that, he's just kind of a guy to me who can be a starting center, but might get head hunted. Right. So will he fit into that top group that are worth paying yeah. and, and, and worth drafting high and everything else? And, and yeah, that is a, is a real challenge. And then also the kind of the counterpoint to that is think about how much lower the skill level functionality can be for a wing for them to still be valuable. You can have a, a wing that, you know, is, you know, if you were to, to put them in an overall rating is lower, but because of the scarcity, especially at small forward, they're still more, more worth having on your team, whether they start or reserves, because every team needs as many of those players as they can get. Yeah. No, I think that's a hundred percent right. I, I think that that is absolutely critical, especially whenever you're talking about an era where Every team is looking for these modern wings that are able to defend multiple positions. What we've learned about post play in the NBA and in terms of like, you know, the mismatch in the post, if you're six foot six with like a seven foot wingspan, the odds are pretty high. You're 
going to at least, you know, like a, a guy in the post might be able to bury you and get a relatively efficient look, but it's not going to be more than like a 45, 50% look sometimes, or even like a 45, I would say a 42% look. Sometimes at the end of a shot clock, that's valuable. There's just diminishing returns as you get later in a shot clock. But a lot of the time, like you're going to be fine if you're in that mismatch situation. So someone like Melvin Frazier is a guy that I'm probably going to have in my top like 22, something like that. Cause I really like the fact that he's six, six with a seven, two wingspan can shoot a little bit and is already an elite level defender. And I feel like that's going to be a little bit high compared to everyone else. But I just look at the way the league's going and I'm like, that's the kind of guy I want on my team. Look at the players that were drafted in the thirties this past year that are already contributing I know. on good teams. They fit a very specific description. Yep, that's exactly right. You look at guys like OG Ananobi, Kyle Kuzma. Like even, you know, we can throw in like Jordan Bell here. Jordan Bell's like 6'8". A 6'11 wingspan. Ojale is another one. Bogdan Bogdanovich, I know he's like 24, 25, but he played an incredible role this year for the Sacramento Kings. He was great this year. I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Like there, there are actually quite a few. Josh Hart is another one. He, he played really, really well, I thought. You know, I'm trying to think of there. Oh, Dylan Brooks. The fact yeah. that Dylan Brooks was able to play more minutes than any rookie this year. I think that might be my favorite stat, uh, of the rookie class. Like it, it's just, it shows how valuable wing players are in an increasingly pace and space NBA. And then you can look at some of the guys who did not get that much opportunity. Swanigan, Derek White. Yep. Derek White got hurt. But That's yeah. true. But he, I, I think it would have been hard for him just because also San Antonio just has so many guys. Yeah. Like, I actually think he could have helped them a little bit if he didn't get hurt. But we'll see next year. He, he's or like a, Ivan Rabb is another really good example here. Like, yeah. Th- there's just – there is a ceiling in terms of – Tyler Lydon, he got hurt too. He got like, hurt too. But, yeah. but yeah, and there are exceptions. I mean, like, I thought Jared Allen had a really nice year, and I like Jared mm-hmm. Allen. I would have had him higher than 22. Like, he's one of I those did. players who, who, who could, who could have gone higher. And, yeah. and we'll also see one of the Justin most- Patton, TJ Leaf, DJ Wilson went 16, 17, 18. None of those guys got a chance. There were a couple of injury factors there, but like, I don't think they would have gotten a chance anyway. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's imperfect. I mean, Wes Awundu, Justin Jackson. I think Jackson got drafted way too high. But oh, we didn't mention Tony Bradley. But, another but here's another the one. Thing. Justin Jackson. He played like a fifteen hundred minutes this year, probably. That's like true. he played a ton, even though he didn't have a great year, and you know might not look like this incredible NBA player going forward. He still found time on the floor. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, so, so you have all these kind of forces that are working, that are working together. And the idea that even a rotation, I brought this up, even a rotation level perimeter guy, still incredibly valuable because they're, they're, the, especially if they have some upside, because it's so hard to find those guys on the open market. When you go through like the pending free agents this summer, the mm-hmm. number of rotation level twos and threes, but especially threes is just super small. Like it's, it's all these guys that you don't really like, but are going to get a chance because they kind of have to and some of them are going to work out you know some of them maybe due to injuries or just being in the wrong fit it's going to be there but the clear-cut okay this guy can be a part of it aren't there because those players aren't getting lost by their teams they're getting extended like Robert Covington is we should also mention Frank Mason just because he played a fair amount and got hurt and and backup point guards you know if you could get him in the second round and they can actually play granted those guys are usually not good their first year because we talked about how point guards take forever to get to get good and I'm excited to see where that goes 
But, oh, that was another point I wanted to bring up, which I think is, is fascinating, is also how the wings that didn't necessarily get as much playing time this year, how they evolved, because, like, Kennard who, you know, got some time on on Detroit, but he could be a bigger part of where they're going. Terrence Ferguson on OKC, if Paul George leaves, he might end up starting for them. And even though they didn't necessarily have it for the first year, for me, when you draft a guy, you're thinking more about where your team is going to be three years down the road rather than yeah. one because rookies aren't, aren't valuable. And so I think that that dynamic that we're seeing with these players in the 6-6 to 6-9 range, it's only going to grow with time. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that players who can be athletic and defend are only going to get more valuable. Uh, as we continue to realize how important perimeter defense is to shutting down everything that an NBA team wants to do, finding more of those guys is just going to continue to blossom in terms of what uh, NBA teams want to find in their prospects. So you brought up Frazier. Who else from this class do you think kind of fits that bill as a player who might not have star level talent probably on the offensive end, but could still be a part of a team's rotation on the perimeter? Yeah, like the, the comp that I've been making more and more in my brain just the last little while is Mikhail Bridges and Melvin Frazier. Like, I think that there is, like, I would still say that Mikhail Bridges is a better prospect than Melvin Frazier. I just think he is. There's just a, a much, much, much more translatable shot. He shoots it on the move. He shoots it directly off the catch. Uh, he's a good team defender. I think he's a little bit overrated as an on-ball defender. But that fit is just there in the NBA. And if Frazier can't shoot, there's like a somewhat real question, despite the fact that he shot 37% this year. Like, th there's a real question as to what his offensive value would be. But there are probably like three in ten worlds where four in ten worlds where Melvin Frazier is a better player in the NBA than Mikael Bridges. That's just kind of the reality of the situation when you're talking about a like kind of late blooming, hyper athletic wing player that already defends at a high level. I think his defense is more translatable than Mikael Bridges is. I think that his uh, shooting ability has potential to be near what Bridges is. I think Bridges will probably always be a better shooter, but I think he's a better passer, a more instinctive passer. Maybe Bridges is a more uh, high IQ player moving off the ball, but like I, I think it goes to show how a lot of these guys too, these low usage one and a half side of the ball, like instead of being three and D guys, they're like half three and D or three and half D, right? There's just so little wiggle room between them. And I look at guys like that. I look at someone like, I think Troy Brown's really good. I think that Chandler Hutchison is someone that you and I have been talking about on this podcast all year. Every time I've been on it, I've said his name. Kyrie Thomas, I think, is a good guard defender. Jacob Evans, 6'6", six, 6'10", six, six, wingspan, plays well on both sides of the floor. Shake Milton, 6'6", six, 7'1", six, wingspan, point guard skills, but probably going to have to play more of the wing because he's not strong on the ball. Like these three and one and a half guys – they're very, very valuable, and they're very – I don't want to say they're tough to find, but I think that teams don't value them as much as they should necessarily still at this stage given some of the guys that were invited to the combine. Like Jalen Hudson from Florida did not get a combine invite when guys like Austin Wiley and – 
Isaac Haas and all of these big bodied Yodoka Azubuki, these like seven foot big bodied centers who aren't going to be able to move in the NBA did. Yeah, and that's that's definitely frustrating because of, of where the league is going. Somebody I wanted to ask you about, because I know he had a very interesting combine from a physical measurables perspective, is Zaire Smith from sure. from Texas Tech because he, he was shorter than expected, but he plays with a functional length that is important. Yeah, he does. He's so bouncy. <laughs> like he is a ridiculously bouncy athlete. He's very, very quick. He's definitely one of the best athletes in this class, if not the best athlete in this draft class. He utilizes that athleticism well on the floor. Like something that I always point out is applied athleticism. Someone like Hamadou Diallo is probably in open space just as athletic as Zaire Smith in terms of explosiveness. But Zaire Smith is a lot more comfortable operating in space and finding ways to make that athleticism functional than someone like Hamadou Diallo is. That makes him valuable. Now, in Zaire's case, he measured in at 6275 without shoes on, 64 with shoes on, has about, if I remember correctly, like an 84 standing reach. These are numbers that are more commensurate with like a combo guard than a like two, three versatile defensively wing. You throw in the fact that he's still pretty skinny. He's going to need to fill out to be like a true NBA wing. Uh, even though he does use that athleticism exceedingly well on the floor and plays much bigger than his size. Like you look at someone like Victor Oladipo, who's much more filled out from a frame perspective, has I think an inch and a half, two inches in terms of wingspan, maybe even like a half inch in terms of height. It's hard for Oladipo to go like switch down onto four still. Like he, he's good at, he's a really, really good defensive player as a guard. Uh, he can get down onto threes and, and cause them issues as well. But like the truly versatile guys are the guys that can like bang against fours, like a Marcus Smart. And then you look at like Zyre's lack of defined offensive game at this stage. I think that there are some real concerns there in terms of what his overall impact is going to be. And it is important to think about a player's fit within the NBA if you're taking them in the NBA draft. You know, like being a good basketball player is there, but you have to see like what is the pathway to succeed against NBA athletes and the concentration of talent. And we're getting more, not a ton more, but, but you know, progressively over time, more of these, you know, 6'9", 6'10", players that move well enough to play kind of hybrid perimeter roles. I mean, Giannis is a good example here. I think Giannis defensively is better at the four for a lot of reasons. But Zaire Smith, you know, you, you never grade out a guy based on how he can defend the elite guys. But as those players start to fill in more, then it, it changes, you know, I think we're going to see more space for these bigger threes, which Smith could have some problems with. Yeah, no, I think that there's no question there. Plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but I want to tell you about hymns. The fact of the matter is, two-thirds of men start losing their hair by the age of 35. And a very important piece of information to know, and I'm happy I got it at the right time, is that it is substantially easier to keep the hair you have rather than replace the hair you've lost. And so being proactive, being ahead of the game, makes it easier to be where you want to be later on, you know, past 35, even though that's when it starts, that sure is not when it finishes. And so that is really what Hims is going for. And so they are a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, and sexual wellness for men. 
And what you can do at Hims is it connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss. Don't have to deal with a waiting room, awkward doctor visits. So what you do is you go to forhims.com, F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com slash real. This is a URL and you can get a trial month of Hims for just $5 while supplies last. You can check the website for full details. Again, that website is www.4hims.com slash real, R-E-A-L, and you can check it out. Also, have a message from our friends at TrueCar. Here's some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip you also might not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right, True Car is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or a used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Like another thing I've been thinking about too, and this is kind of a change of topic, but it's interesting and I think it's important in the way that you build through the draft. What is the next adjustment? to the NBA after the Warriors kind of fall off? Because at some point, like the, this Warriors run is not going to last forever. Stephen Curry is 30. Like Draymond Green and Clay Thompson have contract issues coming up. And it seems like Clay is certainly going to consider a sweetheart extension to stay in Golden State he's super happy there. But like these things are coming. So what is the NBA's next adjustment? What does an NBA without the Warriors look like? And I do wonder if we start to see an increased impact from big men whenever you don't necessarily have these crazy wings who can just shoot all over the floor out there. But, you know, maybe there's not that. Maybe we've just gone too far around the bend, right? Like maybe with what Boston is doing and what with with what Houston is doing. Like maybe we've just gone too far. Like what do you think about that? What does the war what does the world look like without the Warriors? So it was not, you know, heavily trafficked because it was on the Twitter NBA show and while we're doing an audience we're happy with, you know, it's it is a narrow thing. Nate and I actually had an interesting conversation about this on the game four one with the Celtics and the Cavs. And what we were getting into this point was can a team win a championship without an elite offense anymore? Because while there might not always be a Warriors, I think there will always be a team more in that Rockets or even Cleveland last year ilk where they have a really, really good offense and can put it together enough defensively to make it work. And remember, Cleveland last year, they were a really good offense, but they, they needed a little bit more defensively to make it up. They were they scored against the Warriors. They just couldn't stop them at all. Yep. And there will always be this intense demand for elite offensive talents. I think that that is never going to change because that's just what the NBA is. And Outside of those players, I think that what it's going to be about is who takes away the least from their team's offense and theoretically takes away the least from their defense. So I think those are players. So like you brought up Dario Saric. He is a very good example of this. So Saric 
offensively, you know, he, I think he, I think it'd be, he would be better off if he were a little bit lower usage. Sometimes he can get thirsty and, and aggressive, but it's just the difference between being the player he was on last year's Sixers team versus this year's team where he had to do a lot more. And now they have Embiid and Simmons. Mm-hmm. But then defensively, you could throw him on different assignments, Simmons same way, you know, that kind of versatility. And I think that is always going to be a factor because while Kevin Durant is unique, LeBron James is unique, the fact of the matter is that there will be somebody, I think, you know, there'll, there, there's not going to be another James Harden, but there will be somebody who is similarly talented in a different way. Yeah, And so... The system will be built around making sure those guys have it. But the part that I think is not leaving the NBA anytime soon is spacing offensively. The idea that teams, I don't think teams, high-end teams are going to be playing more than one player at a time who are either unable or unwilling to hit jump shots out to either the three-point line or really close to it. I think that's just a part of the NBA game now. And the league can't select for that. There are enough talented players, and also the the game changer that's coming now is you, you know we talked about these the young guys that are coming in these centers. You know what? Like I've seen a lot of these guys at the hoop summit and various things. They can shoot. Like these are guys. Yeah. These are guys that grew up with that being something they were allowed to do. In certain cases, they were encouraged to do it. In certain cases, they were encouraged to do it too much. And the idea of being four out or more for starting fives is, I think that's just a truism moving forward. And I think that we're seeing this throughout the playoffs that teams who cannot make that happen are just too easy to defend. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Like you look at, it was funny. I was watching a conversation between, I, I think people you've had on this podcast before, Dylan Murphy and uh, Mike Prada last night, they were trying to figure out like what is the next great defensive evolution because there has to be something, right? It's just too easy. If you have one single bad defender on the floor and it's really hard to create lineups with five good defenders who can also play offense, it's just too easy to attack that guy. So what is the next like shell defense that allows you to stay good on both ends of the floor while doing everything you need to do? So, I just like I've been trying to think about that question all day and I think that that question is another big question to answer in terms of the way that we evaluate draft prospects. It's really hard to look at where the NBA is going right now and not account for that fact if you're trying to project in the draft. I think that you have to have an idea of what the next evolution is both offensively and defensively offensively you nailed it i think the shooting is just being able to shoot from five positions on the floor spacing is a drug and being able to force defenses into space is such a significant impediment that it's hard for them to adjust to they're gonna have to find a way to adjust and i think that when you're evaluating these prospects in your mind you have to try and figure out where that next adjustment is otherwise this is all kind of pointless, right? And I think that ties in with something that in my brain right now, I'm tentatively calling it the MK, the MKG test, which is if a player can't shoot, can't slash won't slash both, they have to be so insanely good at everything else that you basically have to know that they're an elite talent. So like maybe Ben Simmons is a better example of this, but Simmons, I mean, and, and Simmons is an example of how you can be a successful player without a jump shot. Hopefully he develops yeah. it, but do going in, in that realm. So 
to me, if, if, unless maybe it's a five, because, but even a lot of these fives are good enough shooters that I wouldn't concern myself with it. And that includes Joel Embiid too. Like Gobert is probably the, the extent there. Mm hmm. If a player doesn't have that in their toolbox and for whatever reason it doesn't look like they're going to, it's going to be hard for me to draft them high. Like They would have to be yeah. that superhuman level of talent like Ben Simmons was. I mean, I had Simmons number one in his class for, for that reason. And that's remarkable. Like If that's the threshold that we're getting to now, A, that's going to lead to a league that's going to have a ton of scoring moving forward because if, if that becomes a threshold question, then there are a whole bunch of guys that just can't make it in the league. But two, how that spills into the youth and college development levels is massive because if you're yep. telling these guys you have to have a jump shot in order to make it in the league, well, then all of these guys are going to like we're going to start seeing these guys get better jump shots because they are going to know that's a, a, a prerequisite. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely right. Uh, I think that we've already started to see it. You know what I mean? Uh, I wonder like where that started. Did that start with like the influx of the European influence on the game? Like it's just been a continual, you know, track from the mid nineties probably to where we are now in terms of finding shooting on the floor. Like I think that Fran Fraschilla in college, uh, from his time over in Europe was like actually running, uh, like mid nineties stuff at Manhattan where he was having guys like space the floor and trying to find ways to get more, uh, interior space. It's just a very fascinating subject that I think NBA teams have to evaluate where the league is going next. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult. It's, but I think it's something that is there. It's something that has to be done. Someone else that deserves credit for it is Don Nelson. Nelson getting spacing from yeah. his fives to create interior room for his other players to work was something that he did in Milwaukee, did in Golden State, and then he did it in Dallas, and then again at Golden State. Like It was an idea that, uh, to a point, it might have been ahead of its time just because the players he was choosing to do it with weren't good enough, but the idea behind it was incredibly important. I think it set the table for a lot of what we're seeing now, and also what I think the European influx did, which was super important is it taught American general managers, youth development people, that it is unreasonable to say, oh, well, this guy's a big guy, just throw him in the paint. Because the, those players like Dirk, even, you know, Marcus Gasol, who didn't have as much of a perimeter game when he came here, but developed it over time. None of those guys have the mentality that I have to do my work in the post. They're like, I can do my work in the post, but I can be high post. I can, you know, I can bounce around. I can set good screens. And so I think that they helped kind of break the break the wall that it existed in terms of the formalism of the center position. And I know people have talked about, you know, like, oh, what would Shaq be in today's NBA? But I think one of the more interesting questions is, I bet young Shaq would have been taking threes. Like, at least it wouldn't have been his whole thing because I think he would have he would have enjoyed bullying, especially now that bigs are getting thinner and smaller because of the switching. He would have enjoyed mm -hmm. some of that. But I think he would have a little bit of that in his game as well. And maybe that would have helped him just it would have definitely taken some of the grind off his body just because you wouldn't be doing it in oh, yeah. possession. And I think you know there there's there's an ecosystem that's evolving on this, but I think it it can create something that leads to a more watchable product and definitely more interesting coaching developments just because of the the interchangeability of everything. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And like the other question is now how much did this actually help the entertainment product of the game. And that's something that we opened talking quickly about the fact that I wish that there were more close games in the playoffs. And you know, I think that 
three point shooting makes for more variant results. And, you know, it, it creates this weird sentiment where should the NBA itself be trying to adjust the three point line? Should it be trying to adjust the way that the game is played much in the way they did in the 1980s and 1970s. So that complicates matters again. The NBA draft is hard, man. Like projecting the way that the league is going to go is a complication. And then you have to draft like 19-year-old kids. The NBA draft is really hard. And also think about the sample that you're getting on on the footage you can watch and everything else. I mean, the college game is so fundamentally different from the NBA game at this point just due to the the different talents. I mean, you couldn't fill a league full of players that have NBA skill sets and are not in the NBA. I mean, you see that same thing with the ACB. And they're 19 years old. And that was, there was a point that I think I think it was Noam Schiller got into on Twitter, which was really interesting about this, this disparity between the NCAA and European basketball on physical talent versus polish. And that you you can't compare apples to apples with any of these guys. And so you get into this weird situation like with Doncic, where it's like, okay, well, which of these is more important? And But I think that's part of what makes it fun. Yeah, I mean, it makes it just so fascinating to try and just figure it all out. Like, that that's why I love, like, I've had college coaches, like, ask me, for instance, like, why I enjoy writing about the NBA draft. You should, you should get out of the NBA draft stuff. Like, just focus on the present. And I'm just like, I kind of, I like doing it. I like trying to figure out where things are going. I, I like the idea of projecting future value of the NBA. It's like, it's like a stock market game to me. And, you know, it's probably, probably why I'm enjoying watching billions right now. Like I enjoy trying to figure out the next great asset in the NBA and the next trajectory and direction of the league in general. It's just a very interesting topic to me in so many ways. It's also a more appropriate lens to view college basketball because that's what a lot of the players who are playing college basketball are viewing it through. You know, like it it would be like for me at this point, and this is just a massive change in my life from when I was in college and watched college basketball to watch college basketball is the top guys, you know, however we want to define that with the age limit, the way that it is right now. And this could theoretically be a big change if the NBA ever went back to the went back to the old age limit is that it is a means to an end for them. And so if they're seeing it as a means to an end, it seems pretty reasonable to me to look at it in terms of how they're going to fit into that next thing. And so it, yep. it, it, it all it all kind of pieces together for me with the draft. There are certainly people doing great work as for college basketball as college basketball. But for my for my own personal stake, and that's why the way I talk about college basketball on Real Jam Radio is through this lens is because I, I feel like it's the most appropriate way to do it for me. Yeah, no, I agree 100 percent. Are there any other players from the combine or just the last, you know, so we, we've talked since the NCAA tournament was over that you've changed the way that you were thinking about them due to new input or just the way that the league is changing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard for me because like I've seen these kids now in large part for like four years, like Zaire Smith, like I, I had not seen him before he got to Texas tech, but like, he's kind of the like exception to the rule. Like shake Milton. I've been watching now for three years. Anthony Simons, who has not played college basketball. I saw him first two years ago. John Porter. I've seen for the last like two or three years. Kyrie Thomas is a junior. Like so many of these guys, like I've been watching them. So it's hard for me to like, I, I'm certainly reactive to the way that they improve their games. And I think that you have to be, and I think that you have to take new information as it comes. But over the course of the month where there have been no competitive real basketball games, I think it's pretty hard to move like 
way up and down where I'm at. Like I, I think that Josh Koji is a guy that I've had in the top 50 for a long time now. I'll probably slide him up like 10 to 15 spots just because I think that he's a little bit better having gone back and watched tape than what I realized whenever I first saw him. But like other than that, I mean, there, there are very few, like a Koji is a guy that I want to make sure and mention. I mean, Landry Shamit is someone that I was really high on early in the season, but the more I watched him throughout college basketball and then watched him at the combine and saw the way he measured, saw the way he looked, I was not like super impressed. I would say, I guess it's hard in a lot of ways for me to like kind of like I'm so I'm so in the weeds on this you know what I mean like the problem is I'm way too in the weeds on draft stuff now like I don't even I don't know like what is valuable and what's not anymore to like say yeah and that makes sense because you have so much more of a book on these guys that each individual piece of information is not going to change that book as much you know certain, right. certain things can but you get into that one stri- right. So, so like one of the one of the straw man arguments that I can't stand is like the idea of people like complaining whenever people say, oh, this prospect is rising. This prospect is falling in the draft. I mean, it happens first and foremost, like guys, NBA teams become more comfortable with guys as they meet them through the NBA draft process, as they get their measurements, as they get uh, a little bit more new information. Like, to be honest, I'm following college basketball a little bit more than what the average NBA general manager is like that. The NBA general manager has to deal with the entire NBA itself, has to deal with stuff going on on his team, has to deal with a billion other things. And then on top of that has to deal with college prospects and scouting. So like, I'm still trying to get a feel for these guys much in the same way that they are. And they're even getting a feel for it more than I I think a lot of people who do this year round are. So it can get tricky, I think from time to time. And and that stuff just bothers me. Like whenever you see, Oh, this guy is, uh, this guy's not rising. He's the same guy he was before he entered the draft. I mean, it's like what I'm saying here is not contradictory to what I just said in terms of moving guys up and down, but it's not as none of this stuff is black and white. It's just like frustrating to me whenever that stuff happens. And there's also the duality that is, and this is why I appreciate people who can do both things of a draft board versus a mock draft. There are, there are players that your evaluation of them does not change, but other teams valuation does because they're getting more familiar or, you know, maybe different decision makers have an opportunity to see them or there are lots of different ways that can happen. And those are not always the same thing either. You know, maybe a guy is rising because he's finally getting seen or he's rising because there's some buzz or something else like that. And Mm -hmm. they're, they're two different challenges and they're, you know, they can be done, of course, by the same people. You are one of them that, that, that does both very well. But it is worth appreciating that those are two completely different things. Yeah. Like, look, I mean, it's just very difficult to do both things because you're dealing with two different skill sets. Like NBA mock drafts are for the most part, like a relationship business more than even like an evaluation business. Now uh, I think evaluation plays into it because uh, NBA teams never give away their full hand and you have to figure out, okay, is this guy a fit here? Is he not a fit here? Like how much of this smoke, where's the fire coming from? But it's just, you know, you have to be able to try and parse through all the information you get as you get it and make new evaluations and make new decisions it just it's not (laughs) the nba draft is very difficult it's constantly challenging and i think that that's why i really enjoy doing it 
couple other just short things to to run through with you. One of them is, do we know anything more about Michael Porter's situation or is it just, because I know I, I think I've heard some things, but I don't think we really know anything more about his back at this point. We don't. Um, he did not go through medical testing at the combine. Uh, he's going to try, I think he's going to try and withhold and pick and choose his spot where he gets selected. This is something you and I talked about as soon as the back injury occurred. Yeah, I think that he's playing it smart, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. But we we don't really have any new information. We we know the analytics on it. We know you know what his doctor has said that, and we know that the back injury is from a couple years ago. He said at the combine and just finally got fixed. So I mean, maybe maybe that's something too. But no, I mean, we don't we don't have any idea on the long term viability of it. Yeah, and he will have the power to control that process a lot more. And and generally that's positive. It might not be a positive in terms of his rookie scale contract salary, but the, the difference between a couple of picks isn't that big a deal. And opportunity is, is a much more valuable commodity for him. And I'm still intrigued on the possibility of who he shares it with outside of the top 10 of teams maybe like, hey, I'd like to go to you if you move up and try to get me. You know, I, I don't know what situations he'll value. I've talked about this before that Porter to me would be a, a great gamble for a team like Denver or Washington or Milwaukee who probably won't pick you know pretty in the teens very often you know maybe maybe Washington will who knows how how good their team is going to be moving forward so if you can coalesce a couple assets let's say he falls to like eight or nine and get Michael Porter then that's your best shot at adding a real high ceiling difference maker for a while yeah and I mean another Example of that that I brought up, I think, yesterday or two days ago to someone is that if I was Chicago and I was a high market team that is always going to spend at and above the salary cap and uh, I'm not expecting to be in this position long term, I would also take a risk on Michael Porter because I have a variety of ways to acquire talent in different ways than, say, Memphis does. And I would take a shot on him in that scenario. Yeah, that's an interesting idea as well. Uh, yeah, and, and so what he chooses to do, where he wants to go, and, and what is he looking for? Is it being in a cool city? Is it opportunity to play right away or at down the line, good teammates? You know, I, I think New York is a, a, a great combination of a lot of those different factors because they have a star talent in Porzingis. They have a need for forwards in the worst way, especially if KP becomes a five, which I expect him to, especially after this ACL injury. So yeah, I, I'm very interested interested to see what he controls and then at the same point you know i don't i think it got overhyped you i believe said the same thing and i trust your instinct on it even more than my own about Doncic. you know the the stuff about him being non-committal about coming over right away i think that was more just playing the game because he's still playing for his european team real madrid yeah but you know, that is a little bit of a power he can wield over the process. And I was thinking about it before we talked today that theoretically, if they wanted to, an American player could do the same thing. It would be awesome yeah, I know. if they I was, did. I, I was thinking that exact same thing while I was writing about the Doncic thing and talking to NBA teams about it. It would be very easy for a uh, like number three, number four overall pick or whatever in the NBA draft. Let's let's call him Jason Tatum. Uh, Jason Tatum would have had very real offers to go overseas if he wanted to go down that route. Is that the natural progression of this? To try and you know leverage any sort of ability that you can over NBA teams to try and pick your spot? Maybe I don't know. We'll yeah, see. It, and it ties in with. I've written before, it's at the Sporting News for people who want to read it. My idea of how they how to solve the draft process is to give teams allocations of money based on record, because if the league still wants to have in and wants to have in the bad teams getting better element of the draft, 
And then players get a right to choose, and I would say teams can at least combine, but also theoretically trade portions of that allocation. So if some player, player X, says, I would rather go to the team with the fourth most space rather than the team with the first most space, that they can do it. And and giving them the agency to sacrifice money, I still think that's their anti-competitive measures of it that I don't necessarily like. But I think that gets to this idea as opposed to the way that it's being managed right now because of the draft structure. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And going back to Porter real quick, because I just want to say that I find it interesting. So like Porter is rep by Mark Bartlestein. Bartlestein has a very strong relationship with Chicago. His office is based in Chicago. I believe he's like kind of friends with Jerry Reinsdorf. Um, you know, that, that organization in general, Priority Sports has placed quite a few different prospects in Chicago before, either via the draft process or via free agency. So don't think it would be all that big of a surprise if uh, Porter ends up in Chicago, but We'll see what happens there. I'm not not saying that like it's a foregone conclusion by any stretch, but I think that there are market factors that would lean toward Michael Porter and Chicago making sense as a marriage, at least, if not necessarily like a, uh, you know, like a promise or something like that. Who the hell knows with that stuff? I wonder about his fit with Markkinen, just because I think Porter can defend both forward positions, but if you have the two of those guys together, then you're going to need a a pretty ace-like defender at the other spot. That certainly is not Zach Levine, so they're a little bit there, but Porter is a good enough talent that I don't think you worry about that as much as just, like, get the best player you can and and make it through. Are you on my uh, Michael Porter potential small ball center train yet? As a starter, I think that would be a little bit challenging, but as Situation, a, as yeah. situationally, yeah. I mean, we talked about this a little bit months ago about the idea of potentially Markkinen and Bagley playing together. About yep. you know, like that, that. I don't think you start those two together, but you could definitely have it for moments. And and again, that that would be one way to thin out the you know the ninety jobs that are going to centers would be to have a couple of those be a little bit more hybrid guys. And it's always hard to do that with a starter, just because teams like the consistency of rotations. Like it's one of those elements yep. that. that you and I can envision, but just doesn't really happen very often because of the way teams like to do things. But yeah, that, that's an interesting idea. I, I broadly support, you know, teams, especially in those second units, putting more offense on the floor, unless you can get somebody who's capable of putting it together. So sure. I'm, I'm generally on board. Yeah. Nine foot and a half standing reach, the relative length, a little bit like seven, one wingspan. Sneaky. It's not like yeah, and and he has decent recognition, so I think that he could you know he could see a guy coming and get over there, and you know he's not gonna you know be the brick wall, but if he can maybe affect a layup, you know that that's probably enough. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my my last stray thought, I am very uncomfortable with the fact that there is another Justin Jackson coming into the league. So <laughs> I think that the way to lean into this is that the Kings should just take him at thirty seven, and then we just. <laughs> We just have it where both Justin Jacksons are on the same team. I'm not a huge fan of Maryland Justin Jackson, so I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not a huge fan of North Carolina Justin Jackson either. I mean, relative to where he was drafted, he can certainly you know he can I think he can play in the league. So, but I think having them both on the same team, it's like okay, let's just let's just consolidate this issue. Yeah, like maybe some sort of gene splicing or something also, along I those lines. Also, I want to see how they handle it on the jerseys. Justin Jackson. <laughs> Like, would it be like J.A. Jackson and J.Q. Jackson or something? Like, whatever their middle names are, they put the middle initial on? I have no idea, but I, I kind of want to see it. And then we'd be we'd be so close to also having, like, theoretically, you could have the Jacksons and the Bogdanoviches together. 
Just build a team of all duplicate names, and then I'll then and, and I'll just never do it for the Twitter NBA show, and we'll be happy. Indiana probably has to keep Boyan, right? Yeah, I, I think they will. My my expectation was what the Pacers are going to do, unless the right player not only is available but also says they want to go there, which is always a challenge when you're not a major market. Is that they'll run it back for one more year, and then they'll be actually. So there's going to be this really interesting circumstance if this happens. I, I'm kind of looking at the long game here. I've already started kind of doing some of the 2019 prep in my head is we're going to see a couple of these smaller markets, but that are actually good teams with young cores have cap space in 2019. And so they're one, depending on what happens with Derek Favors, Utah could be one. Utah could have 50 million in space with Mitchell and Gobert under contract. And so I'm not necessarily saying, oh, somebody like Jimmy Butler is going to go there, but I'm fascinated to see what teams that are have a core and that kind of space can do with it. And we're not going to see it this summer very much, but we will see it next summer. Yeah, I'm very, very interested in how all of that works. Like, like if I was Indiana, like Indiana can create real cap space this summer if they want. Like they can even keep boy on and have like a decent amount of cap space to try and make an impact it's just like what what it where is the history of high-end free agents going to indiana it's a little bit better than what you'd expect like uh thaddeus young and like al jefferson was well, a thaddeus reasonable young was, thaddeus young was traded there oh yeah, yeah 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 thad was traded there who's who am i think oh david west not thaddeus young smaller fours I got confused. Uh, David West, like Monte Ellis was like a reasonable signing for them at the time as well, even though that didn't work out. <laughs> so like it's there's a small history there of this working out for them. Yeah, they, they could have a little a little bit. I mean, I assume they're going to let Al Jefferson go because they don't want to pay his full guarantee. But yeah, I, I think the more logical path for them is to to go at it in, in 19, especially now that Corey Joseph already picked up his option. I expect that East Young will as well. So then they'll, they'll kind of all time out. And Miles Turner, another advantage of drafting a good player later in the lottery, or especially if you can get him not in the lottery, he's going to get a raise, but he only has a $10 million cap hold. So that is not a circumstance like what the Sixers are going to have to deal with with Ben Simmons, where, you know, he's going to have this gargantuan, I think it's like $25 million cap hold. And so, yeah, the Pacers can spend that year. And with Turner at a $10 million hold, they can spend up the cap and then sign Turner and they won't have to worry about being a luxury tax team either. So they, they can make it work. And the next time any of their key players is going to get a raise is Oladipo in 2021. So they could actually make this work. Yeah, no, I think they're in like a really good, interesting spot going forward uh, that can make them, I mean, they'll have to get lucky in a trade or get lucky in a mid-tier draft pick again, but there are worse places to be in the NBA than like a 45-win team that is just like one lucky moment away from getting lucky. Absolutely. And especially with the Eastern Conference being so uncertain, I mean, outside of, I think the Sixers and Celtics have a really good foundation moving forward. Even if those teams don't get another star, they just have so much talent and they're well run and they have other assets. But outside of them, there isn't really another team that you see as like having that upside of, you know, being the, you know, being a team that you would expect to host playoff series, like especially multiple playoff series moving forward. So then that creates wiggle room for basically everybody else. You know, like, I mean, there are teams like the Raptors that had a really good year this year. And, you know, theoretically, whoever gets high end free agents, if that's not the Sixers or Celtics, they can do it too. But the time there, there's a, there's a window here for basically any team that's well run and has a young group to really establish themselves. And yeah, if, if, 
it's championship or bust for whatever reason, that might be tough because it's just hard to get mm-hmm. to accumulate that level of talent. But outside of that, I mean, you could build a pretty good life for yourself right now if you get it together. And that's like, I think that's what Milwaukee might end up being, you know, especially if, if Budenholzer does a nice job there. But think about that compared to the West, where like if you're in the West and have like a 44 to 46 win core, you're saying they're going, yeah, like we could do something. But there are so many teams in their way. And it looks like there could potentially be more in the future. Yeah, Milwaukee's really interesting. I think they should probably be going for it in a pretty substantial way just because it's not every day where you get Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton pretty locked up. So I'd probably be going for it. But yeah, I think it's tough. Anything else you feel like we we need to discuss as a part of the, you know, part of this world right now? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, I really like Marvin Bagley. I think that people have kind of gotten way too down on him. I just note that. Wouldn't it be kind of funny if he goes and plays with John Collins? Because they kind of have that same thing where, I mean, Bagley would be getting drafted high if he were number three, but it's like, okay, they do what they do well, but people just take it for granted. Spider-Man meme. I do not like those guys playing together, though. I will say that right now, just because I don't trust Collins defensively enough to make that work. Yeah, I think I agree, but I'm also not in a place where, like, I think of John Collins as some wild must-have player. Right, either. that's the parallel like, with the Suns. Like, tie, he's tying really it back, good. Tying it back to the beginning of the conversation, like the Hawks don't have anybody at this point that is so good that you go, okay, you you have to consider this a constraint when building your team. No, no question. Actually, that's a good question to end on because I was thinking about this the other day. Because of how bad the bottom in the league is right now, there really aren't that many players at all on the bottom teams in the league. You know, like Orlando, I don't think they have, they have a lot of players I like. I like Eric Gordon, Aaron Gordon. I like John Isaac a lot. They don't really have that guy. Dennis Smith isn't there yet. He could eventually be. Like, I don't have De'Aaron Fox in that category either. So it's remarkable that you just don't have that many constraints. So basically all of these teams should be just going firm at best player available. I don't know about that necessarily because I do think that like a team, for instance, like Sacramento, you do want someone like a De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald, who I think really came on at the end of the year this year, to keep developing into starters on cheap salaries, potentially to become trade fodder. You do still want to take roster fits that will continue to mature and develop within the construct of your roster because that makes everyone look better, right? That makes everyone in your situation look better and raise their value and potentially help you down the road. So I'm a pretty firm believer in taking for team fit as well as high-end value, but I do understand why people are like, just take the best guy, take the best guy, like it's fine. Yeah, I think the line of division there is between, so whether you take a player who's maybe in the same tier, but a little bit lower versus taking somebody in a different tier. Like I, I, with any one of those teams, I would not drop down a tier to take somebody due to a fit issue, but I could certainly see within a tier taking somebody else for that reason. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no question. I think that's absolutely a smart way to think about it. Well, thank you so much for taking time as always. Of course, man, anytime I'm happy to come on and, you know, I'm sure that at some point we'll probably do this before the draft again. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. You can listen to his Game Theory podcast. 
And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him. And this is just a crazy time with, with so many different pieces of the NBA puzzle going on. Playoffs, of course, fascinating. You can listen to my kind of game by game analysis there on Dunked On. This is not really the space for that, but you can get my analysis there. And of course, my writing is usually at the Athletic at this point because I, I do the Warriors, and then I haven't really written much on Cavs Celtics, so that you can only get in audio form. Also, working on a series of pieces for Real GM, including on the draft process. It's just that there's so many things all at once that they're not they're not all the way ready yet, so they're not out yet. And you can also read my off season previews. I'm doing all 30 teams for The Athletic. I think we're a little bit past halfway now. I'm more than halfway through writing them, but they take time to edit and put out, and I appreciate all of the time it takes to, to get them out. So those will be in process as well. I'm really excited to see where all of this goes. I mean, we're at really a pivot point, depending on when you listen to this, in both of these series. So I, I'm very excited about it. And the uncertainty is different, and I'm, I'm sure that some people didn't expect that, and especially with how the Rockets series has ebbed and flowed. That, But that's where we are now. And so I'm really, really excited about that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the best way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise to respond because that is too big considering everything that I have going on, but I do read it because it is very, very important to me. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are really important just for the way for the way metrics and everything like that works. You can also spread the word however you see fit, word of mouth, email, whatever. And you can rate and review in the podcast player of your choosing, but it's great if it's Apple. And it's even greater if you do both. If you do, if you use something else, I actually used Overcast for my podcast, but I still, if if some, if I need to, if it's a podcast I really care about, I leave ratings in Apple because that's where a lot of people find their their new shows, and so that's important. You, the single biggest way, though, to support this show or really any other one that has them is to check out our sponsors. So Bear Mattress, go to bearmattress.com, use the promo code POD100, and you can get a, up to you can get $100 off your mattress any size. It's pretty awesome. BetDSI, go to BetDSI.com, use the promo code REALGM for up to $2,500 on your first deposit, which is awesome. Lots of in-game wagering and, and basically anything you're into there. Hims, wellness brand for men. You can get a, a trial for $5 while supplies last by going to forhims.com slash real, R-E-A-L. It's a URL in this one. You can check that out and get that trial month for five bucks. And TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. So I'm not exactly sure where next week will go. My instinct is that it will be an NBA Finals preview, but maybe I'm NBA Finals previewed out. We'll see. So that's a reasonable guess, but it'll depend on timing when these series resolve. But no matter what, there will be a Real Jam Radio. Already looking forward to whatever it will be. And I appreciate all of you for taking the time to listen. So thank you so much. Take care and make it a great day. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. 
good for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonabello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is, we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. Come in or do a virtual live chat consult from home. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com Slash save. Sonobello.com slash save.